Welcome to the Women in Government podcast. Whether discussing important issues or policies of the day, this is a place where lawmakers and decision makers unite to get the conversation started. People living with type 2 inflammatory diseases often feel limited by unpredictable symptoms and isolated in their experiences. For example, the condition can contribute to the debilitating itch of atopic dermatitis or AD, and sometimes life-threatening asthma attacks, or the loss of smell and taste associated with chronic rhinosinusitis, or CRS, with nasal polyps. Living with these chronic diseases and searching for control, people have looked for answers and found few. I know this because I suffer with asthma myself as well as CRS. Hi, I'm State Senator Maddie Hunter from Illinois. Thank you for listening to the latest Women in Government podcast. Type 2 inflammation, health disparities, and impact on minority populations Last year, we examined how people can have more than one type 2 inflammatory disease. This time, we're shedding some light on the health disparities of this chronic condition, the disproportionate impact on minority populations, and the prevalence of this disease across the country. Joining the conversation is Dr. Deborah Sirka, Head of Dermatology, U.S. Medical Affairs at Sanofi, She has spent 20 years developing and leading medical strategies across multiple disciplines and organizations resulting in impactful medical and commercial outcomes. Thank you for the introduction, Senator. Sanofi is honored to be partnering with Women in Government to continue to bring awareness to type 2 inflammation, furthering the conversation to help inform public policy and positively impact the lives of patients who live with type 2 inflammation is an important shared goal. We also have Dr. Gary Puckren, PhD, President, National Minority Quality Forum, or NMQF. The organization's mission is to reduce patient risk by assuring optimal care for all. Hi, everyone. It's Gary Puckren, National Minority Quality Forum. Glad to be here. Kenneth Mendez, better known as Kenny, is also on our panel. He's CEO and president of the Asthma and Allergy Foundation of America, or AFA. Since joining AFA, he has led the organization in establishing a new multi-year strategic plan that emphasizes dramatically reducing the impact of asthma and allergies on the underserved and tripling the size of the organization's online asthma community. Hi, it's good to be here and thanks for having me. Finally, I want to take a moment to thank everyone who is listening and remind you to like or share our podcast. You can also connect with us by visiting womeningovernment.org. The lack of awareness of type 2 inflammation means people may not fully understand their disease or diseases, how they're connected, and the therapy options available to them. Dr. Sirka, As we begin the conversation, now would be a great time to get an overview of type 2 inflammation. What is it and where does it come from? Well, type 2 inflammation is a normal part of the body's immune system. It's key in fighting off certain kinds of infections. In some cases, though, the exact mechanism is not really understood. Genetic factors and environmental triggers lead to a kind of overactive immune response in the body. 
This overactive response results in excessive type 2 inflammation, which manifests as an increase in the production and activation of white blood cells and other types of immune cells, production of certain kinds of allergic mediators like histamine, which can lead to itch, and ultimately inflammation in specific tissues of the body. These processes are all components of type 2 inflammation and are the basis for a range of chronic inflammatory diseases. As the doctor said, type 2 inflammation is a normal part of the body's immune system and is important in fighting off certain kinds of infections. It's the overactive response which may lead to disease. What diseases fall under type 2 inflammation? The diseases related to type 2 inflammation are characterized by an immune dysregulation and dysfunction of epithelial barriers, like the skin or airways in the lungs or nose which can lead to swelling, itching, pain, and mucus production, depending on the part of the body that's affected. The most common diseases resulting from excessive type 2 inflammation are a kind of eczema called atopic dermatitis, or AD, asthma, and chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps. More recently, emerging science around type 2 inflammation has shown that it is component in the development of other chronic inflammatory skin diseases, specifically chronic spontaneous urticaria, or CSU, and virigo nodularis, and even a gastrointestinal disorder known as the eosinophilic esophagitis, or EOE. We also know that these diseases often coexist. For example, about 75% of patients with EOE have at least one other type 2 inflammatory disease. Senator, I recall you mentioning that you have at least two type 2 inflammatory diseases, asthma, and chronic rhinosinusitis. So you know firsthand what it's like to live with these diseases. Wow, I'm learning a lot myself. So Dr. Sirka, I know it's complicated to answer in a holistic fashion, given the wide range of diseases. However, what types of therapies exist for those living with these chronic conditions? That is a complicated question. Traditionally, the more mild forms of these diseases have been treated with therapies that aim to address the signs and symptoms of the disease in a local manner. For example, topical creams or ointments for AD or an inhaler for asthma. These therapies are typically not effective for patients with the more moderate to severe forms of disease, which in the past have been treated by adding systemic medications that would suppress the immune system in a broad manner. More recently, advanced therapies like biologics have been developed to target type 2 inflammation without broad immunosuppression. Prescribing of these therapies is often limited by insurance, though, to a specialist, and they may also require patients to step through or fail two or more different therapies before they're covered. For example, a patient with moderate to severe atopic dermatitis may need to fail two different topical therapies before they would have coverage for a biologic. As you can imagine, this practice can lead to delays in treatment and result in increased patient burden and sometimes negatively impact patient outcomes. Kenny, I understand that AFA is doing some work to address this issue. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. One of the, as we said in the introduction, you know, health equity and health disparities and asthma disparities is something that we've tried to amplify and focus on going forward. Black Americans are still three times more likely to die from asthma, five times more likely to be treated in an emergency room, and Black women still have the highest prevalence of asthma mortality. So that's something that we have been working on 
and trying to partner with other organizations like Dr. Puckerin in order to create an asthma index, for example, where we could target specific communities based on the data that he's collected through the NMQF and put an asthma overlay on top of that so we could find those populations. Dr. Sirka, since we're discussing health disparities of type 2 inflammation, can you tell us a few of the challenges in diagnosing patients in minority populations? Certainly. In addition to some of the statistics that Kenny mentioned, we do know that some type 2 inflammatory diseases occur more commonly in certain minority populations. For example, African-American children are 1.7 times more likely to have atopic dermatitis than their white counterparts and Blacks are 42% more likely than whites to have asthma. Research has also shown us that there are differences in minority populations that can lead to challenges in diagnosis or how the disease presents. For example, there are definite racial differences in how patients present with AD. In addition to the overwhelming itch, that's really the hallmark symptom of atopic dermatitis, patients with skin of color often present with different signs of the disease. They come to the doctor with thickened or like kinified skin, dark circles under their eyes, and patches of hyperpigmented or darker colored skin. The severity of atopic dermatitis can also be underestimated in black patients. One of the key characteristics used to assess the severity of disease is the amount of erythema or redness that's present. Erythema, as you can imagine, is more difficult to assess in patients with darker skin tones than in those with lighter colored skin. It can appear more violet or grayish rather than red or pink. Because of this, the degree of erythema can be underappreciated and that can lead to a prevention of early diagnosis or underestimation of the severity of the disease and ultimately potentially lead to a delay in access to advanced therapies. Many people living with type 2 inflammation experience substantial impacts on their everyday lives, which increases the disease severity and in the presence of multiple coexisting diseases. For example, around 162 nights of sleep per year are disturbed in people with severe AD. Up to 67% of people with CRS with nasal polyps have impaired sense of smell and up to 50% of people with severe asthma have symptoms of depression. Dr. Puckrin, the National Minority Quality Forum has robust data on the prevalence of asthma across the country. Can you briefly explain the work you're doing to identify areas most affected by asthma? The National Minority Quality Forum, we have been collecting health data now for about 20 years. We have a database of over 5 billion patient records. We collect data on about 160 million lives per year. We got started because what we understood, there are roughly 38,000 zip codes around the country where people live. 70% of African-Americans live in 2,500 zip codes. And so what we wanted to understand was what was happening in those 2,500 zip codes, particularly for disease like asthma. And what we find is that if you take the Medicare fee-for-service program, an African-American beneficiary with asthma is 33% more likely to be hospitalized or have an emergency room visit than their white counterpart. This has been going on for years. And the challenge is that programs like Medicare have not interceded. They've not organized and tried to understand 
Why are we seeing these disproportionate outcomes in minority populations? And so we take our data and we aggregate it up by congressional and state legislative districts and we partner groups like Kenny's because we're trying to bring an end to these disparities. And the only way that we can do that is to localize them, try to understand why these patterns exist and look for ways to break them. Five billion patient records. That's a lot of research. What does your data show with regards to asthma? What the data is really telling us is that the outcomes that we see in minority populations are really a function of the care that's being given in these programs. When you take an African-American with asthma, for example, and then you apply step therapy or prior authorizations, all you're going to do is elevate their risk. To give you an example of what that risk looks like, there are roughly, again, in Medicare fee-for-service, about 200,000 African-Americans who are being treated with asthma. They have 600,000 hospitalizations and emergency room visits each year. And that's a function of how the system is performing. And so what we're trying to do is to help members of Congress understand what's happening to their constituents, as well as state legislators, because these are the fiduciary agents. They're the people who can bring change to these programs. And what we're trying to do really is to see how we can eliminate these disparities. Can I just chime in there to add to what Dr. Puckerin said? Asthma costs the healthcare system $82 billion annually. And if we know that there's health inequity in Black populations, underserved populations are more likely to be hit by asthma, then it's a win-win situation if we can improve outcomes in those communities and then also save money for the healthcare system. So I just wanted to add my two cents in that. Dr. Puckerin, what are the biggest challenges from the data you've collected? Well, first of all, I think one of the biggest challenges is not really in the data. It's really creating the will to try to do something about these outcomes, particularly in minority populations. We actually have the science. I mean, we're getting smarter and smarter. We have the capabilities of bringing down these numbers, but we're not doing it. And so part of the pressure that needs to be brought to bear is really advocacy and certainly working with organizations like Kenny that are going into the community and trying to do something about these problems. We spend a lot of time looking at these numbers. I go to a lot of meetings and these numbers are always called up and kind of admired and shocked. But at the end of the day, we really have to do something about them. So I think the plate that start is really the collective will to say, okay, enough is enough. We need to go in these communities and find out exactly why we have these elevated risks and how do we reduce the risk? Because the point of healthcare is to reduce risk. That is its point. And so much of the time, we end up talking about financial risk and what things cost that we lose sight of the patient. And really, for healthcare, the most important thing is reducing the patient's risk. The majority of our listeners are people in a position to create change and help communities live healthier and happier lives. How can policymakers use this data to address asthma concerns in their districts? So, what we try to do with policymakers is help them understand what's happening to their constituents. All politics is local, and it's important that they understand the impact of policy and the practice of medicine in their district. They can create change. They can set programs and policies in place that reduce the risk 
of that these patients are experiencing. And we really do encourage them to do that. We are coming to the place now where these outcomes are controllable. There's no reason why an African-American with asthma has a three times higher risk for a hospitalization or an emergency room visit than a white beneficiary. There's nothing in the gene pool that's doing that. And the excuse about social determinants, that doesn't explain it. What explains it is we've decided for whatever reason that we're not going to put policies in place that affect change. And that's what we're encouraging legislators to do. Recently, the National Minority Quality Forum partnered with AFA. The goal of the partnership was to provide data to help reduce asthma disparities among minority groups. The organizations previously worked together on the Asthma Disparities in America report. Kenny Mendez, CEO, President of AFA, joins the conversation. Health disparities are a major strategic focus of this organization. Can you tell us about AFA? Sure. The Asthma and Allergy Foundation of America, or the acronym is AFA, we're the oldest and largest nonprofit patient organization for the 65 million people with asthma and allergies in the United States. And we're dedicated to saving lives and reducing the burden of disease through education, advocacy, research, and support. We've got a very large and active online community. So that's part of the programmatic work that we do. But as we mentioned earlier, health equity, asthma disparities is very much a focus of our organization since I've been there. And as Gary said, we want to stop admiring the problem and actually do something about it. On the surface, AD, a chronic skin condition, and asthma, a respiratory disease, may not appear to have much in common, but both are driven by type 2 inflammation. What type of policy work have you been doing to help asthma and patients with AD understand their chronic health condition? You know, our guiding principles for chronic conditions impacting our community, type 2, AD, asthma, we want to promote access to affordable quality health care for diagnosis, treatment, and management. That's a no-brainer. But then continue funding for basic clinical, preventive, and health services research and promoting prevention, screening, and lifestyle interventions that help people with chronic conditions. So we can talk about some policy issues, but for example, home visits for people with asthma, you could get upstream interventions by removing some of the indoor triggers like mold, dust mites, other things by going into those communities and trying to have those things fixed so people don't have asthma attacks. I understand some gaps remain the same with regards to asthma when compared to what they were about 15 years ago. The numbers speak for themselves. Black Americans are three times more likely to die. Black Americans are five times more likely to be treated in an emergency room. Black women have the highest mortality rate from asthma of any ethnic group. What are the challenges for patients to access specialists and treatment? Yeah. Thanks for amplifying that. You know, it really is access to specialists is one of the key criteria we look at. We publish an allergy capitals and an asthma capitals report, and access to specialists is really critical in in that. And to the extent that there are these deserts and places where specialists aren't available, 
then the care suffers. So then you have to have specialty clinics where people could go and then identifying people who have asthma within those clinics and feeding them into a program that gets supported, hopefully by strong policies that encourage reimbursement for home visits, as I just mentioned, and other aspects that try and improve health outcomes. Do you have any special programs that assist patients who have health challenges that fall under type 2 inflammation? One of our primary offerings is our free moderated online community. So if you go to our website, aafa.org slash join, you could join for free where anyone who's newly diagnosed can find others to support them from the community members within AFA. And then we also have AFA staff there. We also have an Ask the Allergist area of our website where our Medical Scientific Council of Practicing Clinicians can answer questions that are submitted to them. And then we also have programs like online learning programs, Asthma Care for Adults, where users can take courses and learn more about their chronic conditions. We do webinars as well with respect to AD and other type 2 chronic conditions. AFA ranks the states that have the best public policies for people with asthma, allergies, and related allergic diseases in U.S. elementary, middle, and high schools. The state honor roll report provides an overview and comparison of state-level school-related asthma and allergy public policies and highlights areas where educators, families, and legislators can improve policies and practices. Can you tell us which states top the list and what they're doing right? How about the states that could use a little help? What can they do better? The way that honor roll works is we look at 23 core policies, and I'll give you an example of a few of them in a second, but there are a limited number of states, Connecticut, Delaware, the District of Columbia, Illinois, Indiana, Illinois, your state, Senator, and then Massachusetts, Mississippi, New Jersey, New Mexico, New York, North Carolina, Rhode Island, Vermont, Washington, and West Virginia. So those are the ones that meet all the 23 core policies that we have. So there are 50 states. As you can see, there's a big gap there. And we include the core policies under kind of medication and treatment. That's one big area. The other is the school environment. And those are the two main areas. And I'll give you an example of specific policies within them. One is the uh, self-administer prescribed asthma medication in the classroom, self-carry and self-administer prescribed anaphylaxis medication. Having policies in the schools like that are really important in the state honor roll report. And then in the school environment, having indoor air quality management policies, for example, are what get you on that list. Having HVAC systems and other important asthma and allergy management systems are part of some of the 23 core criteria that we include in that honor roll report. What other policy tools do you recommend to help patients address challenges related to type 2 inflammation? Well, in addition to visiting our website and getting educated on what some of the key issues are, we have an advocacy tool on our website that allows users to write their legislators to directly support key issues for our community. There's specific acts like we talked about step therapy, the Safe Step Act, other legislation, advanced premium tax credits which limit patients' out-of-pocket costs, continuous eligibility for benefits. Those are kinds of things that we advocate for. And you could visit our website and engage with us and then write your congressmen, your legislators directly. As we wrap up, 
I'd like to pose one final question to everyone on the podcast. How do you think legislators can shape policy to address this issue? Dr. Sirka, let's start with you. I think educating your colleagues and constituents about type 2 inflammation and the impact it has on communities of color and other underserved populations is really important. But it's also key to expand that dialogue to include access to advanced treatment options beyond topical therapies for AD and inhalers for asthma. As Kenny mentioned, there are disparities in access to specialists. And this can impact the ability to a patient to actually have that therapy that they need. Many states, but not all, have enacted legislation that addresses step therapy or fail-first policies by insurance companies that ultimately lead to delays in access to appropriate treatment and can negatively impact patient outcomes. Educating yourself about your state's stance on these policies and addressing them through legislation can help patients have access to the therapies they need to treat the moderate to severe forms of type 2 inflammatory diseases. Dr. Puckrin? I think one of the things that everyone ought to do is what we call precision policy, which is to get familiar with the numbers in your district, to try to understand the hospitalization rates, the ER visits, the mortality that is occurring in your district for people living with asthma, and then take those numbers and see how you can improve them. Healthcare now is really by the numbers. We have the capability to improve outcomes. Um, The therapies are there, but when you put in policies in place that limit access to therapies, it may make financial sense, but it's not going to make any sense to the patient's lives and to the lives of your constituents. So the answer is really know your numbers and then use those numbers to really inform the policy, because what you want to do is drive those numbers down, improve the quality of life while lowering the risk for the patient and your constituents that go to the hospital, go to the emergency room. We think that that's good policy. Kenny? I'm going to take a little bit of a bigger picture approach and oriented towards health equity, since that's a major strategic focus for us. And there are four key areas which I would really emphasize. There are organizations like the CDC and funding for that is really important. They've got a national asthma control program. So increasing funding for that program, which provides grants to states that for the state honor report, various states can qualify for these grants if they adopt those policies. So it's a carrot and a stick thing there. And then there's the Elijah Cummings Family Asthma Act. This bill was named in honor of its original co-sponsor, Elijah Cummings, and it would create programs to better educate families on asthma management and prevention. Then there are two more, the Improving Social Determinants of Health Act. That would allow the CDC to create a program to improve health outcomes and reduce inequalities in the public health system. And then the final one I just want to point out here is the Black Maternal Health Momnibus Act. That's actually a set of 12 bills aimed at addressing the maternal health crisis and ending maternal deaths and closing the racial and ethnic disparities in maternal health outcomes. So not quite type two, but it does address the health equity issues that we've been talking about on this podcast. As for me, I got House Bill 158 signed into law back in April. My health care and human services pillar is primarily focused on creating a more equitable and inclusive health care system in Illinois. It will put a temporary halt to hospital closures, reform Medicaid managed care organizations, take steps to reduce maternal and infant mortality, improve access to mental health care and substance abuse treatment, 
and train medical providers to recognize and overcome implicit bias. Now, this may sound easy, but it was quite difficult and a major challenge for myself and my house sponsor to get this House Bill 158 passed. We had to bring together all of the advocates in those different areas. We had to talk to a hospital association. We had to work with our HMOs and our managed care companies, the state healthcare finance and the Medicaid department. And we had to bring everyone to the table. We had to hold numerous, numerous, numerous hearings during the pandemic. And it was quite challenging trying to figure out how to get all of these persons on board. But we managed with the help of our wonderful staff we were able to overcome all of the obstacles that it took to draft this process. We were able to accomplish this three-year goal within nine months, and it was quite an awesome process. So we're really happy about our accomplishments here in Illinois. Now, I'd like to provide some time for closing statements. Dr. Sirico, can we start with you? Thank you, Senator. First, I would really like to thank you for involving Sanofi in this conversation. I'd also like to remind our listeners that type 2 inflammation can occur in several parts of the body and result in a range of diseases that on the surface may seem to be unconnected, but they actually are connected by that underlying pathology, type 2 inflammation. These chronic inflammatory diseases can impact patients and their families significantly, especially if not treated adequately. Sanity is committed to working with legislators, patient advocacy organizations, and others to foster access to healthcare for underserved populations. This includes supporting research to address existing data gaps impacting minority populations, as well as efforts to ensure all patients have access to advanced therapies. Addressing the topics we have touched upon today will help to mitigate known healthcare disparities related to type two inflammation. Dr. Puckerin, any final thoughts? I would close with this thought. Health policy is now a branch of medicine. It determines access for patients, for your constituents, and the decisions you make follow the patient into that clinical setting with their doctor. And so you need to think long and hard about the policies that you're presenting, but even more importantly, what you want to try to do is bring about improvements to help your constituents live longer, healthier lives with asthma. And your policies and the policies of that you consider will have a dramatic impact on their lives. So think of yourself as part of that healthcare continuum, and you're really setting up the environment around which people living with asthma can find appropriate care. Kenny, how about you? Sure. I'd say first put in a plug again for the listeners here. Visit our website to learn more about type 2 conditions, asthma and allergies. There are 65 million Americans with asthma and allergies. And we've got a lot of great information there so people could help manage their chronic conditions. But getting back to health equity, I would say partnerships. We can't do it alone. This is a heavy lift for us. And again, as Gary said, we can't just admire the problem. We have to have the political will to do something about it, which is one of the reasons why Gary and I have partnered together to do this asthma index. So I think to the extent that we could all work together and try and push forward to make changes in the system, I think we'll all be better off and we'll actually improve costs in the healthcare system. 
Genetic, environmental, and other physiological factors play a role in the presence of type 2 inflammation. Many of its diseases can affect both physical and mental health with the severity of burden increasing when diseases are coexisting. People with inadequately controlled moderate to severe type 2 inflammatory diseases commonly experience frequent and debilitating disturbances and mental health issues. When we factor in health disparities, we see the overall impact on minority populations. Now's the time for policymakers and industry leaders to get to work and support measures to address type 2 inflammation. I'd like to thank all of our guests for joining us on the latest Women in Government podcast. I'd also like to thank all of the listeners for taking the time to hear this important discussion. Don't forget to subscribe to, like, or share our podcast. You can also connect with us by visiting womenandgovernment.org. You've been listening to the Women in Government podcast, a resource made available for those interested in discussing important issues and policies of the day. For more information, please visit our website at womenandgovernment.org.